It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study. This is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, October 29th, 2015. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Looking forward to our discussion. Looking forward to the discussion and glad that you've joined us. We'll look forward to hearing from you. Sign in the chat room at the bottom of your video window or send us an email to questions at collegeview.com if you'd like to join in the discussion tonight we have an important special guest on the line with us tonight jacob we for the last well this will be the third out of the last four weeks that we've talked about the important subject of wine and how it is discussed in the bible okay and especially dealing with whether or not christians should be using intoxicating alcoholic drink right uh we have a special guest with us tonight brett hoagland's joining us from Kansas City, uh, I guess you're Kansas City, Missouri, aren't you, Brett? That's correct. Yeah. I'm on the Missouri side. Uh, Brett and I were participants in a recent uh, two-day study in Coleman, Alabama, uh, and uh, we really dug into the question of wine and its use in the Bible. Brett presented just some really important information, and I asked him to join us. Brett, we really appreciate you joining us tonight on the Virtual Bible Study. Thank you, Greg. I'm, I really appreciate the invitation, and uh, I'm looking forward to being a part of it. Now, this is study number three of three, and so if you're listening to this in the recording, you might stop. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, you might go back and listen to those where we looked at the subject of what the Word means in the Bible. Uh, we talked about how ancient people knew how to preserve uh, grape juice so that it did not ferment and we've looked at those arguments. We'll look at it in a little different way again tonight, uh, just more uh, evidence showing us what the Scriptures teach about the consumption of alcohol. So if you're listening in the recording and you hadn't heard those programs, you might stop and go get those. Uh, but uh, looking forward to hearing uh, the discussion tonight. I had an email from a, a fellow just today who said, uh, um, you know, I, I, you guys say that the word in the uh, as it's used in the New Testament, or even in the Old Testament for that matter, in the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, that the word can mean just grape juice. But he said, why did the why did the commentators always translate it as wine? I think you guys are wrong. It was wine. And I just encouraged him to do some research. Brett, we've talked about this thoroughly, but people need to understand that when you see the word wine in either the Old or New Testament, we're, we're going to talk about the New Testament references tonight, but... They need to understand that that you've got to let the context bear out whether it's intoxicating alcoholic drink or whether it is just grape juice. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we notice as we go through just a word study uh, of that word ornos is that it, it is a very general term. I, I use uh, our, at least I made the statement uh, when we were in the study together a few weeks ago that the word oinos is a general term. It's a term like groceries or fruit. 
uh, it does not necessarily imply uh, what type it is, whether it contains alcohol or not, whether it is fermented or not. Uh, the, the context has to bear out uh, what, what we're looking at when we talk about this idea of oinos. And in general, it means grape juice. And it can be fermented grape juice or unfermented grape juice. It can contain alcohol or not contain alcohol. And I think that until we understand the reality of that word, uh, it does present a problem for us. And part of that problem is that word wine as it's translated. I, I'm not sure that wine necessarily meant, uh, even in the time that it was translated, uh, what it means now. But it certainly didn't, the word oinos didn't mean what the word wine means now for us. And it's not, it's not foreign to language today. We still have the, the term cider. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Cider today still can mean alcoholic apple juice or non-alcoholic apple juice. We use the verb form drink. Do you want or or, or the, go go get me a drink or, or, or I don't drink or I don't what, drink. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Are you or or, or, he, or do you do you want a drink? Someone you know, someone asks you, do you want a drink? You better be careful how you answer that because yeah. you may be saying that yeah, I'd like some booze. Yeah, or we could say uh, like like you said, Brad, it's, it's generic. You know, if I said uh, let's go out and get a Coke. Well, you know, you know that doesn't necessarily mean we'll be drinking Coca Cola. We might be drinking a, a, a an orange drink or a or a something Mountain Dew, yeah. something. But but it's a, and so people need to understand that we've really tried to stress that. But I think that's still a point that some are not grasping. And so I just wanted to start out with that. But Brett, what I really wanted to do here initially was you presented some really good information. I'm going to kind of approach your. Uh, presentation in a in a backward form but you pre, you presented some really good information and what i would refer to as the affirmative arguments for abstinence in the new testament you know so often we sort of end up in the negative mode in these discussions we we so often we have to deal with the verses that are being misused by people to try and justify social drinking uh I think that we need to spend time on what I would refer to as affirmative arguments. And I thought you really did a good job with that. How, how would you start with that? Well, um, I agree with you completely. And I think that you and I recognized in the study that we had a few weeks ago that, that the affirmative arguments were looking at the passages that actually would uh, take us away from social drinking we dealt with those last, and I didn't even get to spend as much time on those as I did some of the others. I think it is important that we approach it from that standpoint first. And because of the misunderstanding that a lot of people have about the subject, when we deal with passages like First Timothy 3 and First Timothy 5, a lot of people think that we're trying to prove from those passages that social drinking is sinful. And that's not what we're doing at all. We're taking passages that have been supplied to us by pro-drinkers or those who would believe that social or um, um, moderate drinking of alcoholic beverage is authorized, and they're, they're the ones providing those passages. We're simply examining those passages to see if it's authorized. If I, if, if I was going to go to the Bible to show where social drinking is wrong, well, those wouldn't be the passages I would go to. The, obviously, they're not proving that it's wrong. They're simply being used and I think misused to show that it's right. Exactly. There are for, other passages. For, for instance, yeah, I would not go to John 2, the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee. I, if I was trying to, to convince somebody that Christians should not drink alcohol at all, I would I would never go to John 2. That's that's not the point. 
And, uh, you know, and so that doesn't make an affirmative argument. We just go there because, as you said, the, the pro drinkers want to use that passage, misuse it to try and justify it. So we have, we have to deal with it. And that's but, a problem in this discussion. A lot of times those who oppose social drinking spend all of the, the time discussing just refuting the arguments that are presented, not presenting an uh, a, a argument that's, that shows that it's not permitted. I think that's exactly right. Well, that, that's exactly right. And, and so and maybe I would compare it to this. In Romans 5 and 1, uh, we are justified by faith. I wouldn't go to that passage to prove that faith only does not save us. It's the faith only advocate that goes to that passage to try to prove that it does. And we use the we take that passage and show that that's not what it's teaching. So I hope that's not complicated or confusing. And maybe we'll have some questions and we can clarify it. But just like just like the Ephesians chapter two doesn't doesn't harm our position on baptism, nor do these other passages that are presented in support of social drinking. They don't harm our position. We can harmonize, and we think the other position cannot harmonize the passages we'll look at tonight with the view that it's okay. Exactly right. All right. Go ahead, Brett. Get, get, exactly. uh, start us on that affirmative train. Well, you know, where I would start, Greg, is with, you know, we are commanded as Christians to be sober uh, at least um, about four different passages in the Bible that we could look at where uh, we have the command to be sober. It's the Greek word nepho that is used, and I think that there's a tremendous amount of... Um, not only implication, but but uh, information that we have in this word that the Holy Spirit used to describe the character and the conduct of a Christian. Um, this this Greek word nepho uh, strong defines it as to abstain from wine, uh, to be discreet, to be sober. Uh, Thayer says it means to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate, uh, to be dispassionate, and to be circumspect. Obviously, all of those words are in contradiction to someone who is under the influence, regardless of how much, uh, under the influence of alcohol. Uh, again, Strong says it means to abstain from wine. Uh, Arton Gingrich says it means to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness. Uh, Vine says that it means to be free from the influence of intoxicants. All of these are all of these definitions of the word are in harmony. And I think that Vine states it very, very clearly to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Um, and I think that find this word. Uh, just, just to clarify, Brett, I think that that needs to be emphasized because when again, here's the here's the case of a word that in our modern day usage is a little different. When I say be sober, you know, a guy who has had two or three drinks, but he isn't over the legal limit yet. He would argue he's still sober. He's not legally intoxicated. And so in our modern day usage, the word sober means maybe you had some, but you're but you're not drunk yet. Uh, not legally drunk. You haven't passed a certain blood level, a blood alcohol level. But in the New Testament, the word sober means to be absolutely free of the influence of an intoxicant. Wouldn't you agree that there's a slight in other words, the way we use the word sober is slightly different than the way the New Testament uses it to mean absolutely no influence of the intoxicants whatsoever. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, because um, I, I think that the way, because what we have, 
and, and I, I wonder if there's more confusion with it now that we have automobiles and, and drunk driving issues because now we have a measure that is given that is um, a determination, a certain blood alcohol content that determines if we are under the influence of alcohol. Um, well, actually, the, the, the blood, the alcohol content in the blood that determines if a person is a drunk driver, it doesn't just mean that they're under the influence of alcohol. It means that they are under such influence of alcohol that they're unable to drive. And so I think that because we have a measure like that that tells us when a person is a drunk driver, we assume that that means when a person is drunk. And that's not at all what that measure is for. That measure just simply means that your motor skills are so inhibited that you can't drive a car. That's not the Bible's definition of what it is to be drunk. And so what, what a lot of people end up with is this very vague definition of, well, they say drunkenness is sinful, but when does that occur? It's certainly, the Bible's not using our current measure of when a person's too drunk to drive a car. They didn't have cars back then. Exactly. They, they couldn't even test blood alcohol content at that time. There was some way for Christians to know when a person was drunk. And I suggest to you, it did not mean that a person had to be stumbling over themselves and, and throwing up in the alley in order to be drunk. So what we've ended up doing, and this goes along with what you were saying, is people have assumed that you're either drunk or you're sober, and that if you're not drunk, you are sober. And they measure drunk, meaning you're stumbling over yourself, throwing up, or you're too drunk to drive a car. I would suggest that it's the other way around. That common determination of drunk is so subjective that it's almost impossible to be able to determine it unless a person is too drunk to drive. But the Bible gives us a word. It gives us the word drunk, but it doesn't give us a real um, clear way of being able to determine when that line is crossed. But it gives us a word, this word nepho or sober, and this goes back to the point you were making. It does give us a very clear way to know whether or not we're sober, because the word sober means to be free of intoxicants. That's how I can know if I'm sober. And if I'm not free of intoxicants, then I'm not sober. So instead of saying, well, if I'm not drunk, I'm sober, instead what we need to be saying is, if I'm not sober, then I fall into that category of being drunk. And that would really completely clear up this whole issue, and it would negate the argument that we can have a moderate consumption of wine uh, but not be drunk. You can't have that. I, I don't believe that you can based upon the definition of sober. Sober is to be free of intoxicant, uh, intoxicants. And, and then you have it, you know, you have this commanded, 1st Timothy 4, 5, 1st Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8, and so on. So, and yes, I, I would agree with your assessment there. And I think when you look at those con the context of those passages that you mentioned, that helps support your idea that if you're not sober, you're drunk, because the, the context tells us why the sobriety is needed. And if we're not free from the influence of intoxicants, then we have sinned. Uh, and we would be the equivalent of being drunk there. Real quickly, let me let me uh, uh, reference some of those passages that you uh, alluded to. Uh, 
First Timothy four, Second Timothy four, verse five. Be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The word watchful there is the same word. Be sober. It's from nepho. And First uh, Thessalonians five, beginning verse six. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. First um, Peter, well, in First Peter. Chapter 1, verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Watchful is the word sober. First Peter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You might just, you know, you might just picture that last one, Brett. You gotta go into the lion's cage, okay? And, and so, I'm I'm going to take a couple of drinks before I go into the lion's cage because, you know, it's it, it just just loosen, you know, j- just loosen me up a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm too tense around that lion. You know, no, if I have to go in the cage with the lion, I want to be at the top of my game. I don't want anything to be inhibiting my ability to think and my ability to physically react. If that lion is coming after me, I want to be I want to be on my toes, so to speak. I don't want to be inhibited in any way. But here's Satan, who is a lion seeking to destroy our souls. But I'm willing to drink some and, and open up the risk that he'll have an advantage over me. And, it doesn't make sense. And the research shows that that inhibition starts almost as soon as we start drinking. The loss the of inhibition. Yeah, yeah the, loss, the, the loss of inhibition starts very soon, and it starts in the areas of sexual purity and, and uh, rational decision-making and... Uh, and so when we are engaged with that lion, we have no, no, there's no place for alcohol in that. You equation. know, Brett, I don't, Brett, I don't remember whether it was you or one of the others at the conference who, who suggested, you know, why does a, why does a worldly boy on a Friday night date with his worldly girlfriend, why does he want her to drink just one beer? Well, he knows because it, it lowers her inhibitions and, uh, and he's more likely to be able to achieve his fleshly carnal desires if he can get if he can get her less watchful. She's not on guard. She's not as thoroughly on guard because she has taken at least that one drink. And I think at, a, any worldly person would acknowledge that as being a true observation. And I don't know why Christians would deny that reality. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine how a person can be intellectually honest and try to argue in favor of this mindset that, you know, you think about some of the terms that are used to describe a person who has moderately consumed alcohol. Uh, We can call it social drinking or moderate consumption. The thing is, a lot of people argue for social drinking, but they want to drink a beer or a couple of beers or a glass or two of wine at home, even alone. That's not necessarily social, but they consider it to be okay because it's moderate. When we take that, and, and I, I, I use that illustration you mentioned about the young boy and the girl. Now, let's say that you know they go out on a day or to a party or to a dance or whatever it might be. Uh, the young boys know that the girl doesn't have to be drunk for her inhibitions to be lowered. Um, we use terms like uh, somebody might say, well, I'm not going to get drunk. I just want to loosen up. Well, well, what's being loosened up? You know, and and you know, you put you take that in regard to 
the passage that we looked at in First Peter chapter uh, 1 and verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we know what gird up means. It's the opposite of loosen. And, and he's talking about the mind. And, you know, in, in the metaphor uh, that, that uh, he's using there in 1 Peter 5 and 8, our adversary, uh, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. You were talking about the lion's cage. Satan is, it, it's not going to be a, a battle with a sword. It, it's going to be a battle with the mind. It, he's going to be, you know, his M.O. is deception. And so that's the reason that the Lord's telling us, gird up the loins of your mind. You've got to have control of your thinking. You've got to be sharp and discerning. You've got to be circumspect in everything that you do. And so, the, you know, the question we need to ask ourselves, is there a time when um, Satan is off limits? You know, is, is there a time when we can call time out and Satan's not going to attack us or tempt us? The answer is absolutely not. I mean, there is absolutely not a time. He, he is the most cruel adversary. He takes advantage of every opportunity. We can't be ignorant of his wiles. And so, by that same token, we have got to make sure that we are uh, sharp in our minds. And, and I just, you know, I think about that gird up the loins of your mind. Just moderate consumption of alcohol is not girding up the loins of our mind or our thinking, it's blowing in the breeze. You know, that's, that's, what ha- that's why we say things, or a, a person that, that uh, would, would use or, or drink beverage alcohol, why they would admit that even worldly people that don't think it's wrong admit that when they're drinking, they say things that they regret, maybe to their boss or something. Uh, it's because the loins of their mind are the opposite of being girded up, and they're, they're not... Uh, you know, as, as he tells us, as far be they're not vigilant. And so, no, I think that the point that you're making there is spot on. And the people that are doing these things, Brad, that they regret are not what people would think of as falling down drunk, but they're not sober. They're not, as the word uh, commands, free from the influence of intoxicants. All right, absolutely. Uh, br- uh, Brett, real quickly, uh, because uh, on the uh, before we get to the, our half hour break, I want to I, I want you to get a couple more of these thoughts in about sort of affirmative arguments in favor of abstinence. You you use Romans chapter thirteen verses thirteen and fourteen uh, as as a, I think a good argument in favor of don't drink at all. Romans 13, beginning verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Kind of walk us through that. Well, you know, this is a passage that as I was studying out the issue myself, uh, you know, trying to, uh, asking myself the question, can I uh, prove to myself that that this is something that is wrong, and, uh, you know, what I, I know that the passages that have been provided by the pro-drinkers do not authorize it. Are there any passages that would necessarily imply that a Christian should completely abstain or have no part in it? This was one of them that, when, when I would read past it, it just illuminated, and, and not just in regard to this, in, in a lot of our conduct, but it certainly would include the consumption of alcoholic beverage, that last statement in verse 14, he says, and make no 
provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That I know what the word no means. That means not zilch and zero. So what we we've got to understand that idea of a provision, and I think that we do. It's in the Greek it's the word pronoia, but it, it means forethought, provident care, supply. Now I know what it means to provide for something. When when we're going to have guests and, and we have guests that have come in uh this weekend to stay with us um uh, uh, from out of town and my wife went through and and made sure that there were plenty of clean towels in the in the guest bathroom and and the and the sheets and the bedding were all clean and that the they had everything prepared where they would stay in our home and that for the extent of the time that they're here we're going to be making provision to make their stay enjoyable and, and to make it easy for them to be here and so that's what he's telling us not to do with fleshly lusts here uh, or, or for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, does alcohol or intoxicating beverage make provision for fleshly lusts or for spiritual desire? <coughs> and I, I think that that's a no-brainer. <laughs> there is absolutely no way that alcohol, consumption of alcohol, makes provision for spiritual desire, it makes a provision for fleshly desire. That's the reason we know that drunkenness is so wrong, is because uh, it, it's, it's associated with all of those fleshly lusts, everything that happens there. As a matter of fact, of all the contributing factors, drinking alcohol probably is the single greatest provision for lying, for filthy speech, for sexual immorality, for incest and adultery, physical and sexual abuse. You will see this tied to probably more crimes than any other one factor uh, when we go through and look at all of the crimes. And we had had a, a lesson on that in that particular uh, study that we were involved in. So, you know, I can't think of anything that provides for revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, and strife any more than drinking alcohol does. And that's what he's telling us not to do there. So when he says make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Consumption of alcohol does make a provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That, going back to the illustration that you brought up, that's why a young man wants the girl that he's out on with a de- out on a date with to to drink some alcohol, because the more that she drinks, progressively it makes more and more provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We know that. I, I mean, that shouldn't even be a point that is argued. And that's the thing that's condemned here. Okay. Um, I, I think you're exactly right on that. And then real quickly, one other passage you referenced is First uh, uh, Peter 2.11. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And that would be along the same lines as what you were just suggesting, you know, that uh, if, if we're going to abstain from fleshly lust that war against our soul, we're certainly not going to sort of, let down our guard by drinking intoxicants. Uh, we're, we're just making provision for the flesh. Let me give you. We got a chat room going while you've been talking, Brett. Um, yeah. A couple of comments. I just catch real quickly, and then we're going to take a break at the half hour mark here. Uh, okay. A, a guest from Indiana says, "I found it interesting that according to Texas state law, it's illegal to carry a firearm while intoxicated." 
They define intoxicated as, quote, the introduction of alcohol to the body. Now, that's not that's not a biblical argument at all. But the people who wrote the state laws in Texas said you can carry a firearm, but you can't carry it if you're intoxicated. And we say you're intoxicated as soon as you take that first drink of alcohol, as soon as you introduce alcohol into your body. It's kind of interesting. They they see that. Why would you not? Why would you not want a guy with a gun? If he's taking that first drink of alcohol, well, because his judgment's impaired, he might do something with that gun that you don't want him to do because his judgment's impaired. Yeah. But it just makes sense. Uh, uh, Aaron says, here's a real life situation, not a hypothetical. I know of a congregation in another country that uses fermented wine in the Lord's Supper. Leaving aside for now the question of whether this qualifies as the fruit of the vine, would you say that these people who drink about a tablespoon of fermented wine are drunk for the remainder of the service? Uh, and then he goes on, he says, I believe that they are still sober. There's not a single decision that they would make differently as a result of having drunk that amount of alcohol. I would answer Aaron by saying that that's a subjective definition of sober. The, 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 the language scholars say that sober means free from intoxicants. And so when I take the first amount, however much it is, a lot or a little, then I cannot say that I am free from the free from intoxication. And let's be honest with the discussion here, because I think Christians are only only, only ones that would try and make this argument. People in the world aren't making this argument. People in this world are honest enough to make the to uh, admit they drink a beer for the effect. Yeah. They drink the beer not because they like the, they just want something to drink. They drink one beer for the effect it has on them. Christians are going around and saying, "Well, you just can't get drunk." The Bible condemns getting drunk. People of the world aren't making that argument. People of the world say, "Yeah, we drink." A beer for the effect it has on us. And the scriptures tell us, don't drink alcohol for that effect. It's condemned. Christians are making arguments that people in the world are honest enough to say that that, that doesn't fly. Yeah. Uh, it's really a whole other question as whether or not they used intoxicating wine in the Lord's Supper. I think they did not. And we, we, we can cover that in a future episode. We'll try to make that one of our questions we'll deal with maybe on a, a open forum kind of a program that we do from time to time. I, I, yeah, go ahead, Brett. Well, you know, one of the things that this does is it, it tries to make this uh, this amount minuscule so as to take away the argument. Well, okay, we know how small the cups typically are for the fruit of the vine. Someone drinks that, and it's actually 12% alcohol wine. Uh, that's not just fermented grape juice. If they just meant fermented grape juice, then... We're not even comparing apples and oranges, but if they're talking about beverage alcohol wine, 12% wine, there's a small cup, he says, or she says, the, the uh, one that wrote in, that this person is still sober. Um, look, like you said, what we're doing is we're letting the Bible define. We, we didn't come up with this measure. The Bible says we're to be sober. Sober means to be free of intoxicants. If I work for... Uh, a, a defense company, say uh, an aircraft company uh, with the DOD, and they have a policy that we that I cannot ha- use drugs, period, any drug use at all when I come to work, and and they're going to give me a drug test. If I take one drag off of a marijuana joint, can I say that I am free of drug use? And it, we know that if, I mean, even if, you know, I'm told that even if you eat poppy seeds on a, on a roll or a dessert, that you're going to test positive sometimes for this. 
but if a person went to work, they tested positive for THC, and the person said, well, you know, you, you've been, you know, <clears> using <throat> drugs, but you tested positive for marijuana use. They said, well, I only, I only took one drag off of it. Had they broken company policy? Absolutely. It, it's not the measure of how stoned they are. The company policy is not. And, and the company, by the way, in that, in, that, in, in that example, Brett, the company policy is for a reason. They don't want their employees to use drugs at all. And, and, and right. so, so because they believe that that is counterproductive to the purposes of, of their business, if they have employees who will, cons- who will use drugs at any level, they see that as a compromise to their business purposes. And so they say none, not any. And everybody who works there understands that. And, it, and yeah. so we, we, they don't try to quibble. Well, I just had one drag on a marijuana cigarette. They, say, they understand. None at all. We need to take a break. But the Greek word is nepho. Strong defines it as to abstain from wine. Vine defines it as to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Again, we're talking about Christians, whether it's okay to consume alcohol. You go to the convenience store, talk to the guy who's buying a can of beer out of the refrigerator. You ask him why he's doing it. He's paying a premium. He's paying more for that than he is for the bottle of Coke. Why is he doing that? He's not going to, well, you know, it's not going to make me drunk. He's doing it for the effect. Yeah. It has an effect. One beer has an effect. He knows that. That's why he pays the premium and, and, for it. And Christians need to stop making the argument that you just can't get drunk. It's okay to have one. No, it's not. The Bible commands you be sober, free from the influence of that intoxication. Okay. And, and, and Aaron, uh, who, who suggests that the small tablespoon of intoxicating fermented wine in the Lord's Supper doesn't make someone drunk. Well, what if it was a bigger glass? Where, where are you going to draw that line? When are you going to say, well, that'd be too much. Uh, you know, you can't do that. Yeah. Where are you going to draw that line? The Bible draws the line. It says free from intoxicants. None at all. And and so why would we argue that? All right, Brett, we're going to take a, a couple minute break here. You, uh, your, your phone line will go quiet for a minute. And okay. we'll be back. And we want to talk about some of these. Now, let's go negative. Let's go into the negative mode. Let's deal with some of these passages uh, in the New Testament that people want to misuse uh, I dealt earlier a couple of weeks ago with some of the events in the life of Jesus, but you've got some passages that come from events, writings, uh, comments made after the church began in Acts uh, and in the epistles, and we'll look at those when we come back. All right. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual okay. Bible Study will continue right after this. There's more of the Virtual Bible Study to come after these important messages. Stay tuned. Computers are good for lots of things, but there's no better way you could be using yours than to participate in the Virtual Bible Study every Thursday night. Can you think of a better use of your time? Here's some quotes worth pondering. Your focus needs to be on God, not on yourself. Strive to do the right thing at the right time, in the right way, for the right reason. Champions are not made in the moment of contest. They are merely recognized there. One develops into a champion by his daily work and effort. When you die, there are no second chances. We always hear people say, well, you only live once. But remember, you only die once, too. Indecision is sometimes a decision in itself. Satan offers what he cannot give. He is a liar and has been since the creation of the world. Man, wish I'd said that. See, I told you we'd be back. The virtual Bible study continues. And we're back on the program tonight talking with Brett Hoagland on the subject of the consumption of alcohol. Is it acceptable for Christians? Again, we're talking about uh, something here that people in the world wouldn't even argue about. Yeah, people drink, in the world, they drink, and they don't get, not to get fallen down drunk, but they're drinking for the effect. 
which effect the scriptures have banned first Christians with the instruction to be sober. Again, it just it doesn't seem that uh, we're we're arguing uh, this from the right angle here. Those who want to defend the the practice, people of the world wouldn't wouldn't quibble over. It. Yeah, I drink it because of the effect. It seems so obvious, but some Christians won't argue that. Okay. Uh, Brett, I may jump around a little bit on you here. We had a question come in the chat room about 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. So let's go to that. Uh, let's go to that text first. That's where Paul told Timothy, "Drink no longer wine. Uh, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your and your frequent infirmities." Uh, some would some try to use that passage in an, as an argument to justify social drinking. Again, the King James says there, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Uh, we're going to have to go pretty fast because I think we've got six passages we want to look at, but and we've just got, uh, what, 25 minutes to do it. But uh, what do you, uh, how are you going to approach 1 Timothy 5, verse 23? Well, you know, first of all, I would make very clear that there is no doubt that God's Word here authorizes the use of a little wine. That's what, you know, uh, the pro-drinkers have been looking for, is where's the authority for a moderate consumption? Uh, and here he tells, gives authority for the use of a little wine. Now, the important issue is, what does that mean? And what does it authorize specifically? First of all, in order for this passage to authorize social drinking, it says, drink no longer only water, uh, but use a little oinos for your stomach's sake. As we said before, and we don't have time to spend, we don't have the time to take a lot of time uh, of defining this word oinos. You've already discussed it, I'm sure, in other studies. But as we said in the beginning of this one, it is a general term. The context has to bear out whether or not it's alcoholic uh, or, or not. And so uh, can the presence of alcohol be conclusively proven in this passage? Well, as I said, oinos is a general term here, and it's, it's not necessitated. Could this be grape juice? If, if it could be grape juice, then it's not necessarily implied that it's alcohol. And I would suggest to you, first of all, that it could be just grape juice that Paul is telling Timothy to drink. I'm not saying that I know that. This passage is not my passage to affirm anything. This is the passage that someone is using to try to authorize the consumption of alcoholic beverage. Uh, Brett, Brett, just along that line, just how they want to use this passage in the chat room, someone says, if you ask where to draw the line, I'll say that if Timothy could understand some amount that was a little, then we can too. And so there's there's someone wanting to use this passage to justify drinking a little wine. Exactly. And but the first thing, and this is one of those situations where what is um, what is assumed has not yet been proven. What they're assuming is that the wine or the oinos there is alcoholic beverage, and you can't assume what has not yet been proven. You've got to prove from the context because the word will not prove it. The word oinos is a general word; it can mean either one. So the context has to prove that it has alcohol in it. And I want to suggest to you that the, the context does not necessitate that it has alcohol in it. It could be grape juice uh, because he, look, Paul said that Timothy drank water only. That means he didn't drink grape juice. So 
So it would be perfectly proper or reasonable for Paul to tell him to drink some grape juice for his stomach's sake. We know that there are tremendous health benefits with grape juice. So it's at least a possibility, and as long as it's a possibility, it's not necessitated that that's alcoholic beverage in First Timothy 5 and in verse 23. I think, I think now, that's a really great observation, Brett, and I don't know that I'd really even thought of it in those ways before. But, you, you know, I, I think we have probably too quickly yielded and said, okay, that's alcoholic wine, when it's not established in the text that it was. As you said, Paul said that Timothy's normal practice was to drink only water. And he's saying, don't drink only water anymore. Drink some oinos. And as you said, oinos, uh, uh, grape juice, has um, medicinally beneficial properties. But... uh, I also think, uh, as a very simple response to this passage, Brett, whether it was alcoholic or not, but I, I, and I really do appreciate you suggesting, you know, don't don't assume what's not stated. But even if it was alcoholic, this is a medicinal use. You know, this would be like taking. Uh, let's say that you. Uh, I just I just visited a young man just before I came over here to do the program tonight, who had uh, fairly extensive back surgery today. They gave him some morphine for the pain. Well, does that mean is that is that can he can we therefore they gave him some morphine because he had surgery day would that justify the regular recreational use of morphine obviously not a, a, a reference to a medicinal property and the use of something medicinally couldn't be used to justify it in normal uh, course of action at all. I agree completely, and that's. That's exactly where we go next, and that is to say, even if we give you that this is alcohol in this passage, and it's not proven, but even if we give you that, this passage gives positive authority for the moderate consumption of oinos, but God specifies its use. He says it's for medicinal use, for your stomach's sake, or for your frequent infirmities is is the way that it's put there. And we know that when God specifies a thing, all other things within that class are excluded. When he specifies sing, play is excluded. When he specifies unleavened bread or fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper, all other elements are excluded. Um, and, and so in this way, when God authorizes a moderate consumption uh, of oinos, even if we give you that it is alcoholic beverage here, he specifies that it's for your frequent infirmities, not for recreational or social use. There's a difference between those. Yeah, you know, I've, I've often said, Brett, that I actually like this passage to come up because I think it argues our point beautifully. Well, here, here, Timothy, here's Timothy, an exemplary, faithful, first-century Christian. What was his normal practice? Total abstinence. Total abstinence. There's Absolutely. no doubt about it. That's right. And yeah. so, you know, for for people today to suggest that we're just out in left field somehow when we suggest that Christians should abstain totally, that well, is that really out in left field? Tim, here's Timothy. That was his normal practice. So I I, I don't as you said, uh, Brett. There's certainly no authority for social drinking in First Timothy five twenty three. In the chat room, guest eighteen sixty makes a comment, and it's a it's a comment comment that we hear very frequently in this discussion. And I think it's one that we need to consider. 
Guest 1860 says, if you study that culture in those times, everyone drank, even children. It lasted for years. Even in the Middle Ages, kids were drinking beer. Obviously, the concentration was very low, but they still drank. Now, I don't know of any other subject in which we would use the culture to determine what was right or wrong. Especially the culture of the Middle Ages. We could go back to the culture uh, of, of the first century and find out that everybody was worshiping idols and fornicating to those idols. Does that mean that Christians in the first century were fornicating to idols? No, it doesn't. So the fact, if you could go back and look at the culture and determine that even babies were drinking alcohol, that doesn't mean it's okay for Christians. But I think if we were to look at history, we'd find that's not the case. But even if it was, it doesn't prove the point that we're talking about tonight. We've got to have authority from the Scripture, not from culture. A great observation, Jacob. Uh, Well, I think that 1 Peter 4 makes it very clear that they were extremely different, you know, Titus 2, 1 Peter 4, they were so different from the rest of society that uh, the, the, the world thought it was strange. So it, it cannot be sustained that because in general society drank, um, you know, are there Christians in Germany that do not consume alcohol? Absolutely. That Now, is Germany known in their culture and their society for drinking beer, uh, you know, throughout the day? Yes, they are. But that doesn't mean that all the Christians do. So, yeah, that's a, first of all, it's not even a biblical argument that it's, uh, it, it won't even be sustained. All right, real quickly, Brett, we're going to have to, we're going to have to go fast, but let me take you to Acts chapter 2, verse 13. Okay. On the day of Pentecost, uh, the disciples were accused of being drunk on new wine. These, uh, Acts 2.13, others mocked, remember the, the, the apostles were speaking in tongues, others mocked saying they are full of new wine. But Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let be known unto you and heed my words for these are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. Uh, walk us through how, the, how people would like to use that to justify drinking and show why it it, uh, and again, we're going to have to go quick, Brett, but wh- why would that not yeah. work? Well, they would argue that because Peter only denied being drunk, he implied that he and the other apostles drank in moderation. It, it, in other words, people will say, well, Peter didn't say that they, they didn't drink at all. He just said that they weren't drunk. Well, okay, um, first of all, Peter only argued that they would not reasonably be drunk at 9 in the morning. That was his argument. His argument was not, we never get drunk. His argument was, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We, In other words, we, he, what he implied was, we wouldn't be drunk at this time. So if somebody is saying that because Peter did not deny drinking, it necessitates that they did drink. He just denied being drunk. Well, then we could take that same argument and say, well, Peter only denied being drunk at 9 a.m. That necessitates that they got drunk at other times of the day, in the evening. Well, that's absurd. It's absurd because that's not the way that language works. You know, this is an argument that silence uh, gives consent, that that the fact that Peter didn't say that they didn't drink gives consent to the fact that they did, and that's simply not true. Peter was answering some unreasonable mockers. And he didn't give every reason why they weren't drunk. They were accused of being drunk. He didn't give every reason why they weren't drunk. He gave the one that best met the argument. And that, by using logic and reason, there's no way we'd be drunk at this time of day. 
he took their unreasonable accusation and just threw it away. Because they weren't reasonable anyway. They were making fun of the apostles. They weren't seeking the truth. He just took the best argument to take their fun away and throw that argument away. To say that it implies that they drank because he only uh, argued that they weren't drunk, that will not work. It's not a consistent argument to make. I think um, it, it was easy. It was not imply consent. It was the easiest way to disarm the, their their scruple there. The, the, and he wasn't going into a thorough discussion of whether or not <clears throat> right we should consume intoxicating drinks. That wasn't the purpose of his answer. He was just disarming their mockery. It even says that they were mocking when they made that accusation, and Peter's just disarming. the lunacy of making that uh, accusation at 9 o'clock in the morning. He didn't have to get into what well, we don't drink normally. That That's the easiest way to disarm them. Yeah, exactly right. What about uh, – go ahead, Brett. Well, I was going to say that's right, because Peter's concern was for the listeners that were honest. And by making that argument, he completely destroyed these mockers and took them out of the picture. For the honest listeners now, they're going to realize that's right. That was that's a ludicrous uh, accusation. I want to hear what he has to say. Yeah. Okay. Real quickly, let's move on to First Timothy chapter three verse eight. Uh, our listeners, I think most will be aware that the in the qualification of elders, it says not given to wine. Uh, in the qualification of deacons, there in First Timothy three, it says not given to much wine, and so. Uh, again, an argument is made. Elders not given to wine, period. Deacons not given to much wine, which would imply to some people that it's okay to drink a little. The, de- the deacons could drink a little. I-, I would just start this discussion by talking about how backwards that argument would be. If there would be any, the elders of the church ought to be the most spiritually mature and self-controlled individuals out there. If anybody could handle drinking alcohol, you would think it would probably be the elders. And but but they're not to drink any at all, according to this argument. But the deacons, who would be supposedly somewhat less spiritually mature than the elders, are allowed to drink some. I just think I, I've always thought that was just such a backward argument. It doesn't even make sense. But you've got some you you presented some really good stuff on that, Brett. Walk us through that real quickly. Okay. Um... You know, you've got, um, and, and I, I'm not a, a Greek scholar as far as being able to pronounce these words properly, so I have to bear with me. And this is actually kind of difficult just verbally to explain, so I want to encourage the listeners to uh, maybe jot this down and, and to look at these terms here. In First Timothy 3 and 8, that, that phrase, not given to wine, is... Two words. It's not the uh, a Greek word that would be translated not, and then the Greek word paraoinos, P-A-R-O-I-N-O-S, is one word that is translated given to wine. And that's in okay, verse so three. Got, and that's in verse three. That's in verse three. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I said verse eight. That's in verse three. The elders are not given to to uh, wine. Okay, and it's the word paraoinos, and that word paraoinos means to be uh, tearing at the wine, given to wine. Um, it means to be addicted to wine, staying near the wine. Uh, most of the lexicographers tell us that this is what it means. It means to be addicted to wine. In verse 8, when we get the qualification for a deacon, a lot of times, uh, you know, someone says, well, this one says not given to much wine. Well, 
in the Greek, it is not prosecco polyoinos. So instead of using the word paraoinos, it uses three Greek words, prosecco polyoinos. Prosecco means addicted to. The Greek word polys means much, and the word oinos is wine. So you've got in the verse 3 with the elder, not addicted to much wine. That's uh, Art and Gingrich says that's what peroinos means. Art and Gingrich says peroinos means addicted to much wine. Okay. In verse 8, the deacon is to be not prosecco, addicted to polys, much, and oinos, wine. So you essentially have the same, you don't essentially, you have the same qualification given in verse 3 and verse 8. You've just got one Greek word in verse 3 that means the same thing as the three Greek words. I think I said that backwards. You've got one Greek word in verse 3 that means the same thing as three Greek words in verse 8. Paraoinos is the exact same meaning as verse 8, prosecco polys oinos. I know that's hard to listen to. It would be easier to see it on a chart, but it's it, it completely clarifies this whole thing to understand that, and Paul used a lot of parallels where he or, or synonyms, if you will. And what he's done in verse 3 and verse 8 is he's given synonymous qualifications. I think that's not addicted to much wine, not addicted to much wine. They are synonymous terms. I think that's a really great argument. And and again, as you said, it's a little hard to just hear that and and track along with it necessarily. But do a little encourage our listeners do a little research on that. You'll find that they mean exactly the same thing. And Greg, let me let me make this point too because this is not my outline that I know that you've seen. Uh, If if I were to say my kid is addicted to video games, the word much is understood. I, it would be absurd for my son to play a video game once a month and me go around telling people my kid's addicted to video games. If I say that my son's addicted to video games, it is necessarily implied that that it's much. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it wasn't much, he wouldn't be addicted. Exactly. So to try to make a play on words that the word much is used in verse 8 but not in verse 3 is absurd because if the word uh, paroinos means addicted to, the word much is understood in it, and Orton Gingrich say that it is anyway. Yeah, and, and, and you made the point also, and I think it's really good, is, you know, he, he condemns the excess clearly, but you can't use the condemnation of the excess to justify the uh, moderate use of something. I used to tell the kids when we got them ready to go to church, they they would say, can we go out and play? They had their church clothes on. And I'd say, I'd say, yeah, but don't get all dirty. Well, you know, I didn't mean that they could get dirty up to their knees. You know, I, I didn't want them to get all dirty. I didn't want them to get dirty at all. And that's just the way we use language, and that's the way they did in the first century as well. That's right. Uh, that's exactly right. We got just a, a, a few more minutes, Brett. Uh, this is really good stuff. I want I want you to take us to Romans chapter fourteen, verse twenty one. Uh, What's going on in that text? Kind of walk us through that real quick and tell us how that should properly be viewed. Yeah, Romans 14.21 says, It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. And so um, because drink wine is used in the same context as eat meat, some have assumed that uh, this 
that it's just as righteous and right to drink uh, alcoholic uh, beverage as it is to eat meat. And clearly, eating of meat was authorized in Romans chapter 14. But the question is, is the oinos in Romans 14.21 alcoholic, or is it grape juice? And again, the burden of proof is on the one who wants to authorize drinking alcohol from that passage. I don't have to prove that it's not. It, but it, in order to authorize something, it has to first be proven that that is what you're trying to authorize. In this case, that it is alcoholic beverage that, that is uh, tra- uh, translated by oinos there. So the word oinos itself is not going to tell us that. Is it intoxicating? What, what I think is interesting is that when we look at the context of Romans chapter 14, Paul was addressing things that were righteous to do. That it, it was good whether they did it or didn't do it. It was a matter of indifference to God. And if you look at these three, or these four verses in Romans 14, look quickly at verse 20. All things indeed are pure. That's the context of Romans 14. When he's talking about the eating of meats and the observing of days, he's talking about things that are in and of themselves pure. Verse 14, nothing is unclean of itself. Well, obviously, that can't be said of everything, but it can be said of everything he was talking about in Romans 14. Right. The, the days they observed and the meats they ate, and in verse 16, he used the word good. And in verse 6, he said that the person who ate the meat could do that to the Lord, and the one who didn't eat the meat could do that to the Lord, the one who observed the day could do it to the Lord, and the one who didn't could do it to the Lord. So whatever we're looking at in Romans 14 can be done unto the Lord. That would necessitate that if this word is alcoholic beverage, that we could point to a liquor store and tell our kids, all things in that liquor store indeed are pure, because Romans 14 was dealing with things that are pure in and of themselves. And we could point to that liquor store and tell our kids nothing in there that is beverage alcohol is unclean because all the things in Romans 14 are things that are not unclean. As a matter of fact, we could say that every beverage in there is good. And then we could tell our kids that we were going to pick up a 12-pack there and drink one to the Lord. Because whatever is being done in Romans 14.21 can be done unto the Lord. So... Okay, what now, proves too much proves nothing at all. I think you're exactly and, and, right on that, Brett. Now, let me real, uh, we're just all but out of time, but let me ask you the counter, the counter argument. Why then would there be a possibility that someone would take offense at the, the drinking of wine or the eating of flesh? In other words, he's saying, I wouldn't do it if it caused my brother to be offended or to stumble. If it was just grape juice, why would they stumble at that? Well, because obviously there were people that didn't drink grape juice. Timothy drank water only. We know that we just saw that in First Timothy chapter 5. We know that John the baptizer uh, abstained. Somebody says, well, he had a Nazarite vow. Well, that again is assumed. I, I think he did, but I couldn't prove it. Whatever the case, God said that he was not to even drink grape juice. And so there were people that didn't drink grape juice. And I think that it was a possibility that people wanted you know, what we were looking at in Romans 14 are things where a person was stricter in their opinions than what God required. It is completely reasonable that a person would say, I'm not even going to drink grape juice because I don't want to even get close to drinking that which is alcoholic. 
there'd be a lot of reasons for a person not to drink it. But uh, the same reason that somebody would not drink... Well, and we also talked about the fact that these... Uh, if, if it was a grape juice that might have been used in some libation or some offering, like some of the meat was, that, you know, we know in First Corinthians chapter 8, a person may not have wanted to drink that, and another person would say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. It's grape juice. Yeah. But because it had been offered in a sacrifice, somebody might have felt, might have felt like they couldn't drink that. <clears throat> I think you're right. So there are and a again, lot of reasons why a person would not want to drink grape juice. I think you're right. And again, it seems like people have to strain to try and come to this justification uh, by using these texts that that can't really prove the point. Assume the point to be proven. And if we go on in Romans 14 right. down to verse 23, can we say without a doubt it was fermented alcoholic wine? If you can't, you're condemned if you eat because you or drink because you're not doing it by faith, verse, verse 23 of Romans 14. So are you absolutely per- 100% sure? Yeah, That's exactly right. And, hey, and that's a whole other topic, you know, that we could do Whatever's not a faith is sin, and and you know we didn't even talk about this aspect that whatever we do in word or deed has to be authorized by God, um, yeah. and and it won't do to say, well, are you sure that it's wrong? No, I have to do what I know is right. Exactly. Uh, I want to I want to call you guys so in point of order though. Here we talked about the, at the beginning of the program that we spend too much of our time defending or, or refuting the the arguments made in support of the of the activity. Let's go back and just remind our listeners one more time about those arguments we made at the beginning of the program because they are so crucial. And, Brett, you said very clearly at the beginning of the program, we're commanded that we've got to be sober. Christians have no – there's no allowance for Christians to lose their sobriety uh, in order to be – and be, still be pleasing to God. Yeah, that's right. And, that, and that's where we've got to understand the Bible does uh, tell us that it's, you know, it is not for the Christian in those passages. And, those are our affirmative. Yeah, and, and, and we got to have positive. I think you used the expression uh, in our meeting, Brett. We got to have positive divine authority, and it's just not there for the consumption of alcohol. Yeah, and you can't go to you can't go to arguments that condemn drunkenness and say, well, then it's okay in moderation. That's not that. That's, that's not positive divine authority. That's not positive divine authority. And I think one more question to ask. And Joe in West Virginia was on this wavelength, and I was headed this way as well. One thing we've got to ask is why. What's the, what's your motivation for drinking? Is or, or to defend it, or even if you say you don't, but what's your motivation in attempting in defending to defend it? Or in, in, if you do, what what's your motivation for that? We really got to ask it. I mean, is it really just because you're thirsty? I think if you're honest with yourself, and and people of the world have no problem admitting this, they're doing it to be affected by that alcohol, and uh, we've got to ask ourselves why. Why 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 what would motivate you as a Christian to want to consume that alcohol? Something has to be considered. Thank you, right. Brett, thanks yeah. so much it, for it, spending the time with us tonight. We're out of time. But we thank you so much for joining us from Kansas City. Uh, uh, you've done great work and uh, really appreciate your scholarship on this. Such an important subject. Well, thanks for exploring it. And I, I really appreciate the, uh, you having the study. And I'm glad it's going out to a lot of people. And just want to urge everyone to you know, study with a, an open and an honest heart and uh, seek the Lord's will and not your own. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Brett. Go Royals. Go Royals. Yeah, you bet. There. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. All thank right. You. Thanks, Brett. All right. Uh, appreciate Brett for taking time out of his busy schedule to join us on the program tonight. Appreciate you for joining us as well. Uh, certainly an important discussion. No, no doubt we didn't answer all the questions tonight, and we welcome that discussion. We got we, we had tons of, of uh, 
uh, chatter going on in the chat room that we didn't get to because we wanted to give Brett as much time. We had we had a, a, a long email from our friend Chris in the UK, and we didn't get to any of his comments, and we apologize for that. But we just want to let Brett. Uh, Brett's done a lot of important work in researching out uh, those passages. We want to give him the time that he needed to to refer to that. And a uh, an extensive outline that we were reviewing of his tonight, uh, 14 pages, is on is on the internet, and we can provide that link. Yeah, if, if you're interested in getting uh, the outline that Brett presented at this study that we participated in, and 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 there, there were six of us who presented material there, and the outlines are on the internet. And if you're interested, uh, send me an email, questions at collegeview.com, and I'll get you the link. Anthony has been behind the controls tonight and has been totally edged out of the discussion. Thank you, Anthony, for oh, being here. No problem. No problem. Uh, uh, good discussion, and I was happy to, to yield my, my time. <laughs> to yield the floor right. huh? to the gentleman from Kansas City. There you go. Uh, uh, Dad, thanks again. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for being here. If you have, Again, if you have any comments, we'd welcome them. Questions at collegeview.com, and we hope you'll make plans to be back here this, next, this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life. Study his inspired word of the Bible and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.